Dr. King. It is so wonderful to have you with us today. Can you please introduce yourself for us? Hi, Ariana. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. My name is Catherine King. I'm a physician scientist in the field of pediatric infectious diseases. And I've also been involved with Doctors for Change ever since it started about 15 years ago. So, and I'm a physician scientist. I do research in a lab studying bone marrow and its responses to infection. Thank you very much for being here. And thank you for speaking to us today all about COVID-19, a topic that we have been immersed in for a little over a year. So we're gonna start with a bit of a history and an introduction. I'm gonna go through some questions and please feel free to add any additional information as you see fit. So the first question is, you know, back in March of 2020 is when we first learned about COVID-19 and we're concerned about what was happening. Um, but I think we, we all know now that it was probably that the pandemic had started a little bit before then. How long did it take for people to figure out what we were dealing with um, in terms of an, a novel virus? And why do you think we may have been caught off guard? Right. So. Um... The virus was reported and was known um, to the CDC, for example, and in, in various sources by January. Um, the cases that appeared in Wuhan, China were noticed in as far back as November and December 2019. Um, so this was um, really being reported by January of 2020. And for the people in infectious disease and epidemiology, um, you know, pandemics are something that we are always concerned about. We know that this is something that is always a possibility and something that um, emerges from time to, to time. In fact, we typically have pandemics every couple of decades. Um, and, and the key issues in terms of how bad a pandemic is going to be are how transmissible is the infectious agent and how deadly is it? And, um, you know, you've, you've heard about Ebola. You know, we, we did have a significant Ebola scare just a few years ago. Um, Ebola is a highly um, deadly in, infection. And um, that is, one of the things that makes it very scary, but at the same time, because it's so deadly, it doesn't tend to transmit very efficiently across the world um, because people get so sick and die so rapidly that before they have a chance to transmit. So we knew um, as of January that this virus had the potential to be deadly and to, to cause some very serious um, infections, particularly pneumonia, um, but also that it seemed to be highly transmissible. And um, so those two things in combination were, were already a, a very significant concern in January. And I know that the information that we were getting through the news media in March was really focused on containment and trying to um, assess whether we can keep the virus outside of our borders. And, um, and I, I think that, the, that folks who know coronaviruses, uh, these viruses that are respiratory and, and can 
be transmitted through droplets in the air are just really, really hard to contain. They don't respect political boundaries or geographic boundaries in, in, in the age that we live in now with so much international travel. Um, it was it was not surprising, I think, to, to most people in the field that this ended up um, really traveling around the world uh, very rapidly. But, you know, I think, why were we caught off guard? Wow, that's a, that's a tough question. It's so, um, it's so um, multifaceted, right? There's, there's so much um, coordination that's required for a, an excellent pandemic response. And um, probably there's just so many things that you could say about this, but, but one is, is perhaps simply that it's been a long time since the world has seen a pandemic of this scale. And it's quite natural. It's quite natural that um, when that's true, people become a little complacent and we, you know, we nat don't naturally feel that we need to devote a lot of resources and attention to something that's kind of a theoretical um, danger. So this has certainly reawakened those concerns and, and hopefully we'll be much better prepared for the next pandemic. Being of COVID-19 uh, similar or different than other pandemics that we've experienced in the, over the last 20 years? Uh, you know, I'm thinking SARS and MERS and other, I mean, you already mentioned Ebola. Um, I would say that similar and different in, in, in various ways. Um, yeah, I would say that the, the COVID-19 pandemic started in a very similar way that um, the SARS-1 pandemic and MERS probably started. And um, really the, the key difference in how they came out was it is really more a factor I think of intrinsic properties of the virus than in terms of the response to the virus. Um, so SARS-CoV-2 is remarkably efficient in in transmitting from one person to another, and that's probably the biggest thing that has um, that has really made it su such a successful virus in being able to infect so many people so rapidly. And, um, you know, MERS is actually much more deadly. Um, and, and again, asymptoma asymptomatic transmission, again, just a property of this virus, um, which, is, which is true for SARS-CoV-2, but not really for MERS, um, has made it again, has contributed it to it being a very successful virus and transmitting around the world. Um, so one of the striking things about SARS-CoV-2 is the great range of conditions that it can cause in humans, all the way from asymptomatic infection to severe illness and death. And um, that has made it a particular challenge, I think, because um, of course, if people are infected but don't know it, it makes it ever so much more difficult to control. 
um, meanwhile um, causing very severe illness in, in a lot of people. So it's a, that's a tough combination. When did we first start seeing cases of COVID-19 in Houston in particular? Um, in March were the first cases. Um, in early March, we had our first cases and, and they were um, reported in people who had traveled. Um, and in particular, we had um, cases of people who had traveled to Europe. Um, at that time, there, there was a significant outbreak in Italy and um, there was some tracing of, of travelers who had come from Europe and, and perhaps been exposed in Italy. We had um, also our first pediatric cases toward the latter part of March. Um, and, you know, I think in retrospect, when we look at the data, we will find that there was a, there was broader scale transmission happening in the United States by mid-March than we realized at the time. And um, if you'll recall, the first cases in the United States were reported in the state of Washington and then in California. Um, but in fact, there were probably cases that were um, brewing in the New York City area even quite early on in, in March or late February. So I think after this time, we've seen that there are particularly um, vulnerable groups of people that have been most affected and hit hard by this disease. So for example, people living in crowded apartments versus single family homes, nursing homes, students. Um, can you speak to some of the sub-segments of the Houston population that have been hit the hardest? Absolutely, and thanks for asking that question. There has been a significant inequity in distribution of the um, COVID-19 illness and mortality across American society um, throughout this past year of the pandemic. And um, as you referred to, crowding is a, a major concern for any respiratory virus. We see this with the flu, um, but here also with COVID-19, this virus is transmitted from person to person through droplets in the air when someone coughs or sneezes. And so um, naturally, um, people who are living in more crowded conditions are, are more exposed. Um, also, people who um, not only have more people within their own household in terms of their apartment, their home, but who live in apartment buildings or in multi-unit housing um, facilities. And then also, um, also related to sort of socioeconomic status, people who um, depend on working in a setting in which it is very difficult to avoid exposure. Um, so people who have to take public transportation, such as a bus, to get to work, um, people who are working, such as in a grocery store, where they're in uh, contact indoors with many people, um, that, that just um, increases the risks of infection. And, and by contrast, there are others who can easily 
work from home and limit their exposures to others and, and those people are able to limit their their risk much more easily. Um, if I may, you know, we can also touch on some of the racial disparities that we've seen yes. in this um, in this pandemic. There's this has been very widely reported and, and well documented that um, the Black and Hispanic communities in the United States have been very disproportionately affected by this pandemic. Um, so. I'll cite a paper in the New York New England Journal of Medicine looking at illnesses that occurred in one healthcare system in Louisiana in March and April of 2020. Um, that the population served by that health system is 31% black and 64% white non-Hispanic. And um, of of the patients who tested positive for COVID-19, 70% were black. 76.9% of patients who were hospitalized were black and 70.6% of patients who died were black. So blacks were twice, more than twice as likely as whites to test positive, become hospitalized or die from COVID-19. In the Houston area, we've also seen this play out among our Hispanic communities and um, for, I think, many of the reasons that we talked about just now. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of factors, but clearly uh, socioeconomic fast fa- factors and racial inequities are, are coming to play as well. So yes. switching gears a little bit, um, one of the first things that we had in our arsenal to address the spread of COVID was getting people tested. Can you talk a little bit about the tests that were first available, uh, you know, some of the PCR testing, and then some of the testing that we're seeing now in terms of the advent of rapid tests and potentially home testing um, as the, the pandemic has evolved? And that, you know, what, what should we be doing in terms of testing? Um, we know what, what we did in the past and what worked and what didn't, but what do you see as the evolution of testing moving forward? Right, um, so uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is an RNA virus, um, and the method that has primarily been used to detect this virus and as, a, as a diagnostic test in, in people is a nasal, as a nasopharyngeal swab um, and a PCR test. And the PCR test essentially detects the RNA of the virus. Um, as, as one might expect for a brand new virus um, and a huge global need for testing, um, all of a sudden there was a huge um, range of different tests that were developed originally and con- that continue to be used in, across the world. Now, I, I want to say that, you know, we, it is pretty incredible that this brand new virus that is causing disease in people that was first recognized in December of 2019, we had the sequence of the virus by January of 2020. And that's pretty incredible. So that's something that's, um, that's very powerful and has enabled all the testing and also the vaccine development to happen very rapidly. Um, and that was not true even just a few years ago. So 
That's a great thing. So um, the, the sequence of the virus was needed to develop the test, and um, now we're using a range of different um, PCR-based tests to detect the virus. You know, I think that um, the sensitivity and the specificity of the testing is, is dependent on a lot of factors. Number one, the, the actual procurement of the sample, right? And, um, and we know that uh, a lot of people have heard about, you know, these nasal swabs that go all the way back to the back of your nose and they can be very uncomfortable. Um, but the, that, that method has yielded the most sensitive and reliable testing for the virus. Um, there are some t studies out there that suggest um, a nasal turbinate swab, which is really a swab more of the middle part of your nose instead of all the way back, mm -hmm. um, may be as um, sufficiently um, sensitive to, to be a good diagnostic test for this virus. But currently, the clinical standard is still um, really to use the nasopharyngeal swab all the way back in the nose. Um, the other... Um, issue with the PCR test is that it, um, you know, the, the, the actual specificity of the test is quite good as a PCR test. Um, and, and so the performance of the standard uh, PCR test is, is very good. Some of the rapid tests, as you might expect, are less sensitive. Um, and so can yield false negative tests. Um, on the flip side of it, the standard PCR testing that's used in medical laboratories can be overly sensitive. And so uh, one of the issues that we dealt with over the past year was um, understanding the difference between a positive test and a, cont a contagious state of being. It turns out that a number of people who get infected may shed low quantities of the virus for many weeks after they've been infected. And it's unclear if that matters or means anything. It may be such a low level of virus that is not infectious to others. Um, also, PCR tests detect RNA even if the virus is not alive. So it is possible to detect virus by PCR, but not have live virus that is um, that can be cultured from a sample. Mm -hmm. So what we learned along the way was that um, that a positive test, particularly for people who have been ill but have recovered, um, does not necessarily mean that they remain contagious. Um, so we we um, have, have moved away from using a negative test as a requirement for kind of a return to work or return to the community after infection. So we'll be getting into some questions around vaccine in a minute, but while we're still on the testing question, uh, can someone who has been vaccinated and has antibodies test positive uh, one of these PCR tests? Absolutely. Um, that absolutely can occur. Um, so that brings us to the point about antibody testing. So antibodies are the um, are the protective proteins that our body makes to protect ourselves from infections. 
and they indicate so having positive antibodies in your system indicates that you've had a previous exposure to an infection or the vaccine. Um, most of the antibody tests that are available are not quantitative, so they're just yes or no. Do you have antibodies or do you not? So it's very important to realize that having a positive antibody test does not necessarily mean that you have sufficient antibodies to protect you from an infection. That's what people in the field called uh, neutralizing antibodies. Um, so just the fact of having antibodies, it does mean that you've been exposed, but it doesn't mean that you necessarily are immune. Um, so that, that's sort of a, a, an important um, distinction to make. And, um, and, and going on to the, the vaccine question, um, we know that the vaccines are, are excellent at inducing an antibody response in people. And in fact, the evidence shows that the vaccines produce a stronger antibody response than the actual infection. So that's a little bit counterintuitive because most people think, well, the natural way is the better way. In this case, the vaccine is actually inducing a stronger antibody protection level than the um, natural infection for most people. Um, but without the, the potential illness. I'm sorry? Without the potential illness, too, which is so much more oh, yes. <laughs> preferable. <laughs> it is preferable. Um, the... Uh, vaccines are not perfect, and so not 100% of people who receive the vaccine necessarily mount an antibody response. There are a few people who fall through the cracks. I don't know of any vaccine that's 100% effective. So there's, you know, there's five or five or six percent of people who receive the vaccine who, for one reason or another, don't mount a good antibody response against um, the antigen or the vaccine component. And then, and then we also know that it is possible for people to get infected, develop an antibody response, and then still get infected again. This is quite rare, but it has been reported, and um, and you know may may be related to a, a weaker immune response, or simply the fact that the initial infection was mild and did not generate a very strong antibody response, and so resulted in the second round of infection. Okay. The good news is that um, among what we would call breakthrough infections for people who have been vaccinated, but then became infected afterwards, the um, illness associated with those infections has been mild and we have no reports of people dying after having received the vaccine. So while we are on the subject of the vaccine, um, we know now that there are three vaccines authorized for use in the, in the United States uh, and potentially others on the horizon. Can you briefly explain the mechanism of the available vaccines, how they work? There are so many vaccines in the pipeline now, which is really, really exciting. Um, the three vaccines that are um, have been granted emergency use authorization by the FDA are the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, and the uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So we'll start with the Pfizer and Moderna, which were the first two that were, that were, were granted emergency use authorization. These two vaccines are mRNA vaccines. 
This is a, a, a new technology that's been in development over the past several decades in which um, we, are, we take a, an mRNA molecule, which is, encodes the spike protein of the virus. Spike protein of the virus is a component of the virus. It's not the whole thing, but it is the important part of the virus that helps attach the virus to human cells and enables it to get into human cells and cause an infection. And, and luckily for us, people had done research on coronaviruses for many years before this, this novel coronavirus emerged and had identified important components of coronaviruses that do these things like attach to human cells and um, and maybe good vaccine targets. So even before we knew about the novel SARS-CoV-2 virus, we knew that coronaviruses make spike proteins that help them attach to human cells. So when this virus arose and was sequenced, immediately the vaccine developers um, were able to hinge on this spike protein and, and, and focus on it as a potential vaccine target. So the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines um, contain an mRNA, which is the code, the, the genetic code that um, codes for the spike protein. And the idea is that this code is then enveloped into a lipid membrane, and that's injected into your arm. And the cells of your arm take up this mRNA, and they, they take the code, and they produce the spike protein. And it's really cool because they don't produce the virus. They only produce the spike protein. And the immune system then um, looks and sees this spike protein, which is a foreign protein, and makes an antibody response against it. So then your body is, um, is armed with antibodies against the spike protein so that if you, are, if you then later encounter the actual virus, you already have antibodies that fight against that virus by recognizing the spike protein. Um, the wonderful thing about these mRNA vaccines is that mRNA is a quite unstable molecule. It is very difficult to keep it around for very long. And so when this vaccine is injected into a person's arm, it's around for long enough to, for some of the cells to make the protein, but then it goes away and it's gone. Um, and, and therefore, it's, there's uh, really nothing lingering in the body from the vaccine um, that would cause any other, other issues or, or immune responses uh, later on. So unlike um, other vaccines that, 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 are with, that have been used in the past that are using live virus or attenuated virus, there's nothing that's left behind. Right, well, you know, in theory, there shouldn't be anything left behind either from a live virus or an attenuated virus, but I just make the point here that RNA is especially unstable. And so even for those live or attenuated viruses that might be around for a few days or a few weeks, these mRNA vaccines aren't around for more than a couple of days and um, maybe even less than that. And that's why you've heard about how they have to be transported in super cold conditions, because that's the only way that we can keep them stable enough to even still function at all when they make it to the human body. So um, I take that as actually a, a, a really ingenious technology, right? That it's going to do what we want it to do for just the right amount of time and no more. 
Um, there's been concern, you know, people are always worried about what could, what could this do to my body? Uh, what, what could it do? Could it hang out in my body? Could it integrate into my DNA? Um, and I would just say, you know, our bodies make RNA all the time. That's how our cells function, how we make proteins to keep our cells alive and, and to keep our bodies growing. So, um, no, the, the RNA doesn't really go into the nucleus. It doesn't integrate into our DNA. It's, it's hard to imagine that it could um, do anything like cause cancer or cause permanent um, long-standing problems in our bodies. The concern that some people have is that it would generate something that would lead to an autoimmune response. Mm -hmm. And um, certainly, you know, the goal of these vaccines is to create a protein that our immune system will respond to so that it will then protect us from this virus. And if the spike protein is similar to anything in our own body, there would be the theoretical concern that the immune response generated would then attack ourselves and generate some problem. Um, but so far, there's no indication that these vaccines uh, or the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus is, is similar enough to any of our natural uh, proteins in our body that, that any type of autoimmune problem has occurred. So it's, um, it's good news so far. In the, in the history of vaccine science, um, which is now, you know, 60, 70 years old. We've never had a vaccine cause a serious side effect that was, that didn't emerge within the first two months after the vaccine was administered. Mm -hmm. So certainly there's been vaccines that have caused side effects and and certainly we have an extremely high, high expectation, high threshold for safety in vaccines because we are administering these vaccines to healthy people. So they have to be extremely safe. Um, and that is why these vaccines are tested in tens of thousands of people and they are observed for at least two months after the final administration of the last vaccine. Um, because we know that by doing that, by watching people for at least two months and by watching tens of thousands of people, that we um, can be confident that they are safe. Mm -hmm. And um, in, the, in the months since these vaccines have been approved for people 16 and up, now hundreds of millions of people have received these vaccines. and um, and the world, the medical community continues to be extremely vigilant in monitoring for side effects and potential adverse effects from these vaccines. And, and very thankfully, really no serious side effects have emerged. So that's, that's fantastic news. So let's talk about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So that one is an adenovirus-based vaccine. So it's based on a little bit more traditional vaccine technology where we use essentially the shell of a virus that's called adenovirus and um, we stick in it the genetic 
material to encode the spike protein. So again, like all of the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, they're all based on spike protein, and they're all based on the concept that they're going to train the body to make antibodies against the spike protein. And um, the difference is for, this, for the Johnson Johnson uh, vaccine that it's encased inside of an adenoviral vector, which carries the genetic code for the spike protein into the body and helps the body then to produce that protein. So the Johnson Johnson vaccine is um, unique in that it is an only one-time dose. Um, so that makes it easier to administer and easier to use. It also doesn't have to be stored at such a cold temperature because it's not mRNA. It's in an adenovirus, so it's a little bit more stable. So that's good. Um, and so it's been a, a, a great tool. I heard about the pause that was taken Yes. Um, in, in the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and that is because as vaccines are rolled out, we carefully collect data from millions of people who are receiving these vaccines and monitor for any potential adverse effects. And um, it was through that mechanism that it was recognized that uh, more than the number of expected people were getting um, venous sinus thromboses mm -hmm. um, within about two weeks of receiving the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, there's always going to be safety concerns um, because if you take millions of people and you ask them, have you had any health concerns at, in, in the couple of weeks after getting a vaccine? Well, yes, there will be people who have heart attacks, people who have strokes, people who die. Um, and that is because if you look at millions of people, there are among them going to be people who get strokes and heart attacks or mm -hmm. die or have any kind of medical issue. And so it's always, um, the question always to ask is, is this more than the expected number of people that we're seeing with this particular condition in the window of time right around a vaccine? And is there some causal relationship? And, um, and, and this signal was detected now for this, this issue, this rare condition of a sinus venous, uh, a venous sinus thrombosis. Um, and that is what triggered the pause by the FDA. Now, I think that what they concluded was was um, extremely well thought through and mm -hmm. responsible, which is that yes, they recognized that there was in fact a one in one million mm -hmm. chance of getting a venous sinus thrombosis after the Johnson Johnson vaccine. And um, literally it was one in one million. And um, that this was a higher than expected frequency than you would expect in the population before this vaccine was available. And so that there may be uh, um, some relationship. And um, as you heard, it was among women in, in middle age mm -hmm. and, or between the ages of I think 18 and 48. And, um, and so the pause was really taken not because they were trying to analyze the data, but the data was already there, but um, to address what was the, the right public health measure to take to um, minimize the 
potential risk mm-hmm. for people getting the Johnson Johnson vaccine. And so the, the action that was taken was to give guidance to physicians um, for what kinds of signs and symptoms to look for uh, among people who are getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and how to manage them if they were to arise. So importantly here, um, it use of heparin and blood thinners is contraindicated for people who are appearing with this condition after the vaccine. And so they were able to issue that guidance to physicians and say, you know, the treatment for this is IVIG or, you know, anti-antibodies um, to help address the, um, the antiplatelet effect that's happening. So um, in the meantime, they, they were very clear that um, they approved the continuation of the use of the vaccine because the benefits of the vaccine are very clear, even mm-hmm. despite this risk of a one in a one million chance of a very severe blood clot because the chances of dying from COVID, the, t- the chances of getting seriously ill, hospitalized, or having long-standing health problems from COVID are far, far, far greater than one in a million. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they're probably one, one in a, a thousand in some communities. So, um, so the, the relative risk um, of, of getting the vaccine is much, much lower and the, and the benefit to society for people to get vaccinated, including using the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was extremely clear. So I think one of the things that comes up in conversation a lot is confusion around what it means, um, what, what the term herd immunity means. So we know, and, and you know, here at Doctors for Change, our members and anybody who works in the public health community is a big advocate for vaccines. We want everybody to get the vaccine, but not everybody can get it. Um, and just because you and I are protected doesn't mean that the community is protected. Can you go into that in, in a little bit of detail, please? Yes, absolutely. Um, so herd immunity um, is the concept that, um, you know, these viruses survive and they continue to cause infections in our community because they pass from person to person. And um, if they cannot pass from person to person, they, the virus is stopped in its tracks and it has nowhere to go and it ends. So the pandemic ends when we stop the ability of it, the virus to go from one person to the next. And, you know, one of the ways that we can stop it from going from one person to the next is to stay away from each other or to wear masks and to, you know, prevent the virus from being spread in the air around us or to get vaccinated and you know it's been really fantastic and encouraging to find that based on the research that's been done now including by the CDC that these uh, all three of the vaccines are um, effective in protecting against asymptomatic transmission so not only are they protecting people from getting sick and hospitalized and dying from COVID-19 but they're also protecting people from unwittingly getting the virus and spreading it to others. So that's really um, even better probably than expected performance of these vaccines. And so if we can get enough people protected um, by the vaccines that they can't uh, get infected and they can't spread the virus um, to others, 
then the virus will, will, is predicted to drop geometrically. It cannot spread, and so it will just be trapped in a single person, and then it won't go anywhere, and, and sort of that's the end of the pandemic. So there's, for, for every virus um, or every infectious agent, there's a sort of a, a percentage of the population that needs to be protected and have immunity um, in order to, to really stop the chain of transmission. And that number depends on how infectious that organism is. So the more infectious an organism is, the more people have to be vaccinated to stop it from being transmitted. And uh, meanwhile, if it's a wimpy, agent and it can't transmit very easily then then you know that not that many people would have to be protected in order to um, shut it down so there's been lots of people trying to predict or um, understand the behavior of this, this virus and its infectiousness in order to predict the percentage of the population that would need to be immunized in order to get what is called herd immunity. Um, just as a point of reference, the measles is one of the most highly infectious organisms that we know of. Um, it has an R value of 15, which means that on average, one infected person infects 15 other people. And, and this virus, it hangs around in the air. You can have measles walk through a room and there's measles in the air for hours. And anybody who walks through that room afterwards in those hours could get infected. So that's an example of an extremely infectious agent. So SARS-CoV-2 is not that infectious, um, but, but it's more infectious than the flu. Mm -hmm. so, um, so people have been making various estimates for how many people must be vaccinated to to stop the chain of transmission. And, and, you know, I think we heard numbers that were as low as 50 and as high as 85. And um, most recently, people have really been focusing on sort of a 75, 80% range as being uh, needed for herd immunity. I think we won't really know until we hopefully get there. Um, but um, uh, that, that is the goal. And as you mentioned, there are some people who are not eligible for vaccination or who um, may be vaccinated but may remain vulnerable to infection because they have such a poor, weak immune system. And I'm thinking about people who have cancer and are, are in chemotherapy, people who are, are born with inborn errors of immunity, um, babies. Mm -hmm. um, there, you know, there's there's segments of our population that are vulnerable, and if we, in a sense, cocoon those people um, among uh, a sea of people who are vaccinated, then they will be protected from the this infection. Um, and so, really, I think it's important for people to remember that um, by vaccinated themselves, they're really contributing to our community rising above this pandemic and being able to control it and really contributing to the protection of vulnerable members of our community. 
So I think we've all heard a lot about the spread of the illness and that it's droplets and, and all of the different things that we can do to prevent it. Um, what do you think has been the most challenging in terms of getting those messages out, you know, um, in term, mass, the importance of wearing masks, the importance of social distancing, um, you know, reflecting on almost a year and a half now since everything shut down, um, there are still precautions that we should be taking even, even if people are, are getting their vaccines. Um, what sort of comments do you have about some of these other precautionary measures that we all should still be, be doing to prevent illness? Yeah, um, you know, I think, I think perhaps the most difficult thing about this has been the um, indefinite endpoint of it all. You know, I think back in March of 2020, we were all willing to do what it takes to, you know, respect a sort of shutdown order, stay home and stay away from each other and wear masks and wash our hands for 20 seconds. And that was over a year ago. And with, you know, understandably, um, now we're more than a year later and people are fatigued and it 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 is um difficult when you can't see your friends or hug your family members or um or be together with the people that you care about um and i think that we should recognize that that has a takes a toll on people and and for sure in this past year we've seen significant mental health concerns and, and anxiety and distress uh, because our lives have really been significantly affected and so you know i think like many many things in this pandemic there's um there's no clear black and white and i think that uh, unfortunately these issues have been very very significantly politicized mm-hmm. and um, that has been sort of to the detriment of of, of good common sense measures of, of health. Um, but, you know, right now, um, what I would hope is that we've learned as a society um, how to, to do our lives and to find a balance between um, what's safe to do and what we also need to do to keep our lives going, to, to do our jobs, to care for our communities, mm-hmm. to be in touch with our families. And um, and, and so um, I, I think that we've been able to find ways to do the, both of those things safely. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I would say right now that, boy, is it wonderful that we have a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And uh, having the vaccine really puts sort of the power in people's hands um, to to arm themselves and to, in a sense, make it okay to do so many more things safely um, than we were able to do without vaccines. So that's probably the first thing. Of course, we're still waiting for the vaccine for the for the younger children mm-hmm. under twelve, um, but we hope that that will be available by by the fall. Um, but in the meantime, you know, we um, mask wearing a mask is. A highly effective way of reducing viral transmission, um, over 90% effective, and that is wonderful. It's such an easy thing to do, and it's um, 
not expensive, you know. It, um, so, you know, I, I, I hope that this past year has taught us that really it's not that difficult to wear a mask and it's not so um, disruptive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in particular, I would say that it is the personal responsibility of people who have not yet received the vaccine to continue to wear masks, um, and especially in indoor spaces and anywhere that they're in contact with other people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and that that's the primary um, issue. Um, because the vaccines are, are quite effective and, and are also um, helpful in preventing asymptomatic transmission, now the CDC hasn't, you know, issued mm-hmm. guidance that says that it's okay for you to go indoors without a mask um, if you've been vaccinated, and and um, I think the science backs that up. Um, but I think that people can can use their common sense. And personally, um, I'm still wear, wearing my mask quite a bit, even though I'm vaccinated. And and that I feel is um, out of respect to people who are vulnerable members of the community. I am sometimes taking care of patients who are immunocompromised. Mm-hmm. I very much want to do everything I can to make double sure that I'm not exposing those people. And, and likewise, when I'm around more elderly um, members of my community, I find that it's a simple thing to do and it's sort of a sign of respect for the people around me to go ahead and put my mask on. I am 100% in agreement. I think it's also important that we model the behavior for the kids who who aren't able to get vaccinated just yet. So until, as you say, later in the fall when the vaccine is available for kids under 12, they still also need to be wearing their masks. That's right.